Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to tell Howard to stop picking on Gary so darn much. Here is the captain. I don't know what to say, boff. Baba boy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. I know that times are tough right now, and no one is denying that. But remember what Jeff Goldblum said, life finds a way. So today, friends, we are drinking Must Go Faster by one of the very best brewers in the business. That's right. I'm talking about Tactical Brewing Company. This is a delicious Imperial New England IPA, double dry hopped with Sabro and Citra. 9.3% ABV garage grade four and three quarter bottle caps out of five. That's right. This beer is awesome. And you know who else is awesome? These folks right here. First up, let's give a big cheers and thanks to our friend Carol in Asheville. And a big shout out to Katie in Rolette, Texas. Here's a cheers plus a big Ron Swanson please and thank you to our friend Marlene in the parts that are unknown. Just a reminder, during the holiday season, you want to wash your parts unknown. And a big We Like Your Jib to Paige in Insanesville, Ohio. Next, we have Anna in Delaware, Ohio. And last but certainly not least, we have Angie and Megan in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the great cities in this great country. Cheers to everyone that went to TrueCrimeGarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fund. Yes, B-W-E-W-R-U-N beer run. For all of our old episodes, check us out on the Stitcher app. It's free. And we also have a button show called Off the Record. We do a lot of case updates on that show. So check that out on Stitcher Premium. And we want to wish everybody a happy holidays. And hopefully your family is safe and everybody is doing well. 
And we love you, you filthy animals. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. This week's true crime story will focus on two young ladies home alone on a Thursday night. Their plans for the night fell through, so it looks like plan B is a quiet evening at home, or at least that is what it should have been. The two roommates pass the time texting with friends, but life turns on a dime, and just like that, they go silent. The next morning, both of the roommates are unaccounted for, M.I.A. They fail to be where they are supposed to be. A concerned friend decides to check on them and finds the unthinkable. Both women are dead. The two ladies were killed in their own home. There are very few clues and even fewer suspects. Police wondered, did either of them have a past with known enemies or associates with a reason to hurt or kill them? Did the killer target the two roommates, or was this a random homicidal act? Could it be that only one of the young ladies was the real target? Was Melissa just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or was Nicole the one who was collateral damage? This is True Crime Garage, and this is the unsolved murders of Nicole Glass and Melissa Mason. It was midday on a Friday, December 3rd, 2010. A young woman who has never been named publicly was trying to reach her friend, Nicole Glass, age 27. The unnamed friend was trying to reach Nicole for several hours. Nicole failed to show up at the gym that morning, which was highly unusual. Nicole went by the name of Nikki. Nikki's phone was going straight to voicemail on that morning. The friend decided to head over to the home that Nikki shared with her roommate, Melissa Mason, also age 27. This house was located at 4247 East Cambridge Avenue in East Phoenix, Arizona. This was a modest single-level home on a cul-de-sac in a residential neighborhood. Nikki purchased the home in 2006. When the friend arrived around 12.20 p.m., there was no response to her knocks at the door. Now, although both women's cars were parked at the home, so she suspected that they would be home, at least one of them. So when she tried the door, it was locked. But then the friend didn't give up. She walked around to the back of the house and started peeking in through the windows. And through one window, she saw the body of a woman lying on the floor of the living room area of the home. So she called 911. 
on the 911 call, she says, quote, I just came over to my friend's house and she's not answering the door. And I went around to the back and I just seen someone lying there. End quote. When investigators arrived, they noted that the house was locked and there was no sign of forced entry into the home. Once they forcibly gained entry, thanks to some help from the fire department, they found the bodies of not one, but two women lying on the floor. This was, in fact, the two roommates that lived at the house, Nikki or Nicole Glass, the homeowner, and her roommate, Melissa Mason. Sadly, both were dead. There was obvious and visible trauma to both bodies. One of Nicole's dogs, a bulldog, had also been beaten as well and required medical treatment. Thankfully, the dog survived. Yeah, if you look at pictures of these two, they they almost could pass as sisters. Yeah, they were the same age. They were longtime friends. And as you just pointed out, they, they could pass for sisters or cousins. Now, the autopsies, Captain, confirmed what people who viewed Nicole and Melissa's bodies must have surmised. They both were killed by way of ligature strangulation. This information was released in a statement by the Maricopa County Medical Examiner's Office. The ligature was a cord-like object. It was not stated whether police believed that the ligature or the cord-like object came from inside the home. But it is reported that the implement, whatever it was, was not found at the crime scene. And even more tragic, the medical examiner discovered something very important while conducting the autopsies. Melissa Mason was eight weeks pregnant when she was killed. So this is even more sad, but fittingly so, the case was declared a triple homicide. Yeah, when you first hear that, maybe it leans to some kind of motive. Certainly. It, it raises suspicions, that's for sure. Now, Rachel Glass, Nicole's mom, told us, True Crime Garage, that she narrowly avoided being the one to find her daughter and her friend. She was supposed to go over to Nicole's house to help her with a printer, but she was too tired after working. So she left Nicole a message saying that she would do it over the weekend. Rachel found out that her daughter was dead when she received a phone call from one of Nicole's friends telling her to turn on the news. Now I don't see in any reports where there's any sign of break-in. Correct. There was no sign of, of forced entry into the home. And in regards to Melissa's mom, Sandra, she received a phone call that frankly, no one wants to get. She learned over the phone that her daughter, Melissa, was dead, and even worse, that her daughter was murdered, and that no one knew why, exactly when, or who committed the homicides. Now, in regards to the time of death, in this case, it's going to be very difficult to determine, Captain. Of course, you always want to know the time of death to determine who had the means to commit the murders. But according to the family, the medical examiner was not able to pinpoint a time of death. All that the public has been told is that the two were believed to have died between, this is sometime between 8 p.m. on December 2nd and 12.22 p.m. on December 3rd. Now, the basis for this very loose timeline is this. It's reported that Melissa's boyfriend, Marquise, was at the house visiting Melissa on the night of the 2nd. Now, according to him, 
both women were home and accounted for, and of course, very much alive when he left the home around 8 p.m. Marquise is the last known in-person sighting of both of these young women. Now, per HLN, Detective Toby Myers, who was in charge of the investigation initially, said that both women sent text messages from their phones after Melissa's boyfriend left their home. Quote, since there were only text messages and not phone calls, meaning no one heard their actual voices, right. consider Marquise to be the last person to see or talk to the girls, said the detective. However, at some point that evening, it may have been earlier, Nicole was at a Ross clothing store in Phoenix. So it must have been earlier, I'm guessing here, Captain, but there's no time frame for this event. As far as we know, the Phoenix PD has never reviewed the video surveillance footage from the store to see if it held any clues. Now, I want to put a little caveat on there. They may have reviewed this surveillance footage. They've just never spoke publicly about this event on the timeline. And again, we know that this happened per the family and per witnesses. However, we don't know when this event occurred that evening. I'm guessing because of statements given by the detectives and law enforcement there in Phoenix that this would have been before the boyfriend left the home or, again, we're taking him for his word, the boyfriend says he left the home at 8 p.m. So this must have happened before then. Right, and all they're, what they're trying to do there is that we have this eyewitness saying, hey, I came over, I was there for a while. When I left, they were both alive. Well, we got to find out if they were alive before then. Okay, well, we have now this movement where... Nicole was at at a shopping center. Possibly she used her debit card to pay for something. And then we have other eyewitnesses. So so now we know that his story is lining up more with what he's telling law enforcement. And to further extend that timeline a little bit, Captain, according to Melissa's mother, Sandra, Melissa also sent out some text that evening, the last one going to her boyfriend, Marquise, just after 10 p.m. Now, he says when he called her back, it was after midnight and her phone went straight to voicemail. This is according to what he told Phoenix police. And I'm guessing law enforcement has both of their cell phones. They do. And that was a bit of a mystery for the public. And we'll get into that deeper as we go, because I think that's a big part of this case and a big part of the mystery of who done it. So we have Marquise, the boyfriend, being the last known person to see the girls. Apparently he told the police that when he left, Nicole was in the shower and it sounds like they had a, a bartending job scheduled for that night, but neither woman ever went to this bartending job. And that's it. When, when the, when the friend showed up at their house at 12, 22 PM, the next day, both of our victims are already dead and the killer or killers were long gone by that time. Now, Captain, I would mentally walk everyone through the crime scene, but that will be quite difficult in this case. The Phoenix police have released almost no information about the crime scene. So little that even the families of both of the victims 
know next to nothing about the state of the crime scene and what evidence may have been found inside the home. And remember, our poor woman who discovered them, who has never been named, did not enter the home. So we don't have any statements from her either. She simply saw the body of one of her friends lying on the floor in the living room area and then called 911 when looking through after looking through the window of the back of the house. Well, two things there. One, they're protecting the friend's identity because we don't want her to become a suspect. That's one. But two, Or a victim. Right. And But I also want to take a second to look at the front of this house. It looks like it's a single-car garage. I'm guessing the garage has access to the house, like maybe it's side access to the house. And then you have the front door, but it looks like there's possibly a window on the front door, but also there's a front window, which if somebody's at your front door, you'd be able to look out and and know who was at your front door. Yes, that's correct. Now the, the Phoenix police department told family and friends of the victims that this was a very high profile case. And they said that it would be best if very little information was released, not just to the public, but very little information released to the, the victim's inner circle of family and friends as well. And as we stated, they did confirm that there was no forced entry into the home. All of the doors and the windows were found to be closed and locked. And law enforcement stated that the killer must have locked the door on their way out of the house. This was not done with a key, but with the kind of door handle lock where you turn to engage the lock in the middle of the knob, and then you close the door behind you, and now you have locked the door on your way out of the house. Right. There is some information about the crime scene that we do know, and it is as follows. Both Melissa and Nicole's cars were parked at the house. Melissa was found on the floor between the kitchen and the dining room area. Well, hold on. And the reason why that's important to, for them to say, hey, both of their cars were there, meaning that the individual that did this definitely knew both of them were home. Yeah, if you're going to just judge on suspicion of anybody being home based on vehicles spotted out front, then you see both vehicles and you go, eh, they, they must be home at this time. Right. And if I was a killer and I was going to target one of the individuals, I probably wouldn't go in. It probably would not be the opportune time to try to kill one of them if both of them were there. Right. And that's going to, that leads us down the path of was this planned or was this something that just was reactionary? Mm -hmm. Now, Nicole was found on the floor of the living room. Other than that, no information was released whether there was any sign of a struggle inside the home or whether the two women were restrained in any manner or whether anything was missing from the home, which is. Very interesting to me, as the detectives have said, that they could not rule out robbery as a possible motive, but they went on to, you know, just to add to the vagueness of investigator statements here, they also went on to say that they could not rule out any other 
type of common motive for the murders. Yeah, but with death by strangulation with two individuals, it almost feels like it leans to more than one uh, perpetrator. Well, we do know, regardless of what it should be or what it is, we do know that they, that law enforcement collected, quote, a lot of evidence from the crime scene. This is per Sergeant Steve Martos of the Phoenix PD. But exactly what that means specifically, right? it, it is unknown. Now, several family members told True Crime Garage that one of the pieces of evidence was the cell phones that you asked about there, Captain. So both cell phones... The phone belonging to Nicole and then the phone belonging to Melissa were, in fact, found inside of the home. But get this. The phones were found in a pot of dirty water in the kitchen sink. So presumably the killer or killers wanted to destroy the phones to destroy evidence on those phones. And as we saw, police were still able to determine that the women had been texting that night and with whom this is interesting because you have to wonder, did police gather that information about the women texting that night and who they were texting and when from the two victims phones, or was that information that they collected from other people? I I'm or both. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering, you know. oh, it, it appears to me, whoever killed these women, be it one perpetrator, two or more, there was some concern given to the phones that they they went out of their way to purposely destroy the phones. Right. You have to wonder how successful they were by leaving them in, in water, soaking in water, presumably overnight or whenever the murders went down. Again, it just leads in my mind to more than one perpetrator. I mean, if you are, have control of one victim, the other victim is going to possibly put up a fight or run to get help or something. And it looks so, like a dog was putting up a fight as well. Yeah, it just seems like there's there's a lot going on and there's a lot to control in this environment. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of environment, the neighbor said that the young women pretty much kept to themselves but always had a lot of cars. So a lot of people coming and going from the home, you know, all the time, Phoenix police department reported that they did not have any reports of illegal activity having taken place at the home. It seems maybe the neighbors were, they might've been a little touchy about all of the friends that the women had over from time to time. Now, I don't know this to be the case, but Often you will see this when younger people, we know both of our victims here, Captain, are 27 years of age. Right. You see this when you have younger people like our victims when they live in an older neighborhood. But I guess, of course, you don't need to be older to be a busybody. You know, sometimes you get neighbors watching one another and policing each other for reasons only because they're, they, they may be bored. Now, Nicole had a series of different roommates over the four years that she owned the home. So there was always people moving in and out of the house. And as we said, the home was on a cul-de-sac, but there was only, it looks like there was only one house across from them, also situated in the cul-de-sac. Behind 
our victim's home where the women died was a brick wall around a small yard area separating their plot of land from a parking lot for an apartment building. So who knows how busy that apartment building parking lot would be at certain times. Let's get into a little background information here in regard to these two ladies. The two 27-year-olds were close friends, as we said, roommates, and also colleagues. They lived together off and on since they met when they were both 23. Until very recently, up until the time of their deaths, they both worked as bartenders and waitresses at a strip club in Phoenix called The Sweet Spot. Melissa still worked there at the time of her death. Now, until 2008, both women had worked at a gentleman's club called Pantera and overlapping there for about three years. Yeah, I used to strip at a club called Megadeth. The managing general partner of the club, Frank Vansucci, told the Desert News that the two were, quote, real good girls, real smart, end quote. Nikki was five foot four inches tall. She was a workout junkie. She used the treadmill and weights at her gym regularly. Remember this kind of the first sign that all is not right. When her friend at the gym says she did not show up for her normal workout that day, red flags go up. She goes over to check on her friend. Right. When she worked as a bartender, as someone who used to bartend, she would be what I would call a a very smart slash popular bartender. She knew how to play the bartending game. All right. So her regular patrons would bar hop. They would follow her from bar to bar as she filled in for relief shifts or for other bartenders. Right. This is something, you know, your, your whole salary as a bartender is based off of tips. And you'll see some very smart bartenders who do this. Often you can only work a couple days a week at a bar because they they have other bartenders and they don't, you you traditionally work longer shifts. So you work just a couple of days. Well, if you want to make good money in, in that career, you get two, two different bars or you move around and you're always letting everybody know all of your regulars uh, hey, tonight I'll be at this bar. On Thursday, I'll be at that bar. And they tend to follow you around in that really, if if your bar ain't busy, you ain't making much money that night. So she was not only good at her job, but but smart enough to to have that following. Now, she recently quit her job at the club and was taking classes at the University of Phoenix where she was studying communications. Better than computer. It was reported by the media that she did not have a steady boyfriend at the time of her death. Nicole's aunt described her to the Phoenix News Times as, quote, she loved to tease. She was fun, happy-go-lucky. She just loved life and lived life to the fullest. But it's also a little bit a part of the job. Uh, if you're a bartender or you're a server, or if you're even in the band that night, your job is to have make sure everybody's having a good time. Maybe you're you become a little flirty, 
that's natural. Melissa was known as BB to her friends. She was a recent graduate from the, it looks like Pima, Pima, Pima Medical Institute, where she trained to become a dental hygienist. But she since decided to go into forensics. She also loved to travel. In fact, one time visiting a cousin as far away as Qatar. In the summer of 2010, she lived with her sister, Samantha. So this would be the summer before the young women were killed. Samantha is her younger sister. She was planning to move back to Tucson, where her family was from. Now, Samantha told us that the summer in the summer of 2010, Melissa seemed great. She was acting totally normal, wasn't into anything shady, didn't disappear at random times or receive mysterious phone calls when they lived together. She was living a normal life that summer before she was killed. Right, but we would be remiss if we didn't point out both women worked at a strip club, and a lot of times with strip clubs, there are there is drug use. Yeah, well, with bars in general, there's there's drug right. use by be it by the patrons or by the the staff staff. Or by, yeah. Now, Melissa moved back into Nicole's house in the fall, so she moves in relatively not too long before these murders take place. And she did recently discover that she was pregnant. It's not known whether this was a planned event, but she told friends that she was very happy about the pregnancy. And she told everyone that the father was her boyfriend, Marquise Melvin. And Melissa mm-hmm. told Samantha, her sister, about the baby, but was waiting for three more weeks until Christmas to surprise her mom, Sandra, with the good news. It was after she was killed that the positive pregnancy test was found in the home in a baggie with Merry Christmas written on the baggie in a Sharpie, with a Sharpie. But the boyfriend knew that she was pregnant. The boyfriend knew, the sister knew, and of course her roommate knew, as well as a couple of friends. She's just keeping it from mom. I'm guessing she would have found out uh, she was eight weeks pregnant is is what we said. So she would have found out probably in November and, you know, she's probably waiting just to Christmas to surprise mom saying, Hey, wonderful news. You're going to be a grandmother. Well, I'm an idiot, so I don't know this for sure, but I, I've heard a lot of people say that you wait 12 weeks. Hey, something could go wrong. Right. You don't want everybody getting all excited and, and happy and, and then, yeah. um, It just adds to the sadness later. Investigative reporter Nicole Parton told Nancy Grace, we're also hearing from former employers, friends, family members, co-workers, that both of these girls were very loving, very generous, and had absolutely no known enemies. And we really couldn't find anybody to say anything negative about either one of them. Yeah, and I think law enforcement would be able to find out if there was any disputes going on through text messages. Yeah. Again, how successful were the killers in in destroying those phones or what information would have been on those phones? We don't have statements from detectives to tell us where they collected 
the the knowledge of of knowing that there were text messages sent and received that night they come right. from from the people that received them or that that were communicating with Nikki and uh, Melissa that night now as we said in 2006 Nikki purchased the three bedroom single level home on East Cambridge Avenue where the women were living she did this with some roommates so immediately she's buying the home and then having roommates move in to help with the expense by paying her rent and taking advantage of at the time what was readily available mortgage loans that were around in the mid 2000s right it looks to us from from our review of the financial documents that she borrowed about $300,000 to purchase this home. At some point she got underwater with the house. After a refinance, this home went into foreclosure, but in November. So this is, this is to point out that she's having some money issues leading up to the murders. November of 2010, just one month before they were killed, Nicole was able to come up with the money to save the house. And at the time of her death, it was actually under renovation. So she and Melissa were still living there while the house was being renovated, but it was empty. It was, it was somewhat empty. You know, there's not a lot of furniture inside the home because the floors were being redone at this time. And the two young women were sleeping on couches while the work was being accomplished. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. 
The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, me mateys. Cheers to you, Captain. Cheers to everybody out there, and happy, happy, happy holidays. Nicole and Melissa's families feel that they have been given the runaround by Phoenix police. The initial detective on the case, as we mentioned earlier, her name, Toby Meyer. She went out on maternity leave for five months after the murders. And according to 
the families. No one worked the case until she returned in October of 2011. So unfortunately, the you know, this is such a stupid thing to say, but unfortunately, the timing of the murders of the investigation is just not not great. We have the detective who's going to be working the case, looking into it. And after five months, she has to go on maternity leave. And then you have the even more sad fact of the case just kind of sits there on the shelf, nobody doing anything with it while Toby Myers is off on maternity leave. Yeah, but that's speculation from the family. Correct. Correct. But speculation or not, what they can say is for X amount of time, this case was unsolved. It was relatively fresh and no one's contacting us. We did not see or hear of any work being done on our daughter's case. So after Toby Myers comes back in October of 2011, she moves on and the case was handed off from there to another detective and then to another detective. And it really, this case really bounced around the department to different detectives for years. And apparently there were a large number of homicides in the city in 2010, and the police force was just overwhelmed. Well, and the problem here with this case is it's not right away when you look at the situation, you look at the victims, you look at Nicole, what she's doing with her life, you look at Melissa, what she's doing with her life, you have a one of them pregnant, so okay, that's a possible motive. Then you go, well, maybe burglary. And could be known, it could have been a known burglary. And the reason why is because you have both individuals that worked at a strip club, both individuals worked as bartenders, both of those occupations give you loose cash, right? That's true. So That's very true. You'd be coming home with cash. And most of the time, because you're working as a bartender, you don't have the time to make a deposit to your bank at night so it's safer to come home and then on top of that thinking about the patrons whether whether they're a stripper whether they're working as a stripper or whether they're working as a bartender guess what both of those occupations have fans right and so now you have a situation where it's like okay were they robbed and people knew what they were doing just robbed in general because they thought, oh, well, there's two females here. We can control the situation. What did it have something to do with uh, the one being pregnant? Or was there some patron that was had some had some uh, fantasy about one or or had some crush on one? And there's so many motives in this case. Yeah. It's possible that some skeevy old dude becomes obsessed with, with one of these young ladies. I think the issue where I take with that theory is you would want to, you would very likely want to wait until your target would be alone. And as you pointed out, seeing the two vehicles out front, if you were watching either one of these young women or following them around, you would know that, Right now is not a great time to to go into the home. The other thing we got to factor in here, too, is you have a situation where there is no force entry. Was was this someone that the 
one of the women knew or both of them knew and let into the home. That's also quite the possibility. What what I think we have here, and this is really just someone trying to read between the lines of the statements given by law enforcement. When I hear we cannot rule out the pro- possibility of robbery as a motive, but we cannot rule out any other motive either, where that leads me is I don't see this being a home that is randomly robbed, meaning it there does not seem to be evidence, or if there was, it's not a very smart tactic as far as law enforcement go to not say, say so. If this, if there was clear cut evidence to detectives that someone just at random picked out a house and said, all right, let's go in there and rob the place. Oh shit. Everything went bad. And we ended up killing the two people that lived there. Police in my experience, will almost always say publicly that this was a robbery. We feel that the motive here for these murders was a robbery gone bad. They say that because they need the public to be aware that this could happen again, that these offenders could pick another house at random. It's time to alert the public that that is is a likely possibility and that their safety is a concern. So what I think we have here, when you have law enforcement saying we cannot rule out the possibility of robbery, but we cannot rule out the possibility of any other motive. I believe that there was, there was something missing from the home, something, uh, maybe an item or a couple of items that were taken from the home. And that's why they had that statement. We cannot rule out the possibility of robbery, but it's not a clear cut robbery at random as said, because they would have taken a whole bunch of stuff from the house. They, you don't just go in there and kill and then walk away with little to nothing. You, you come out of there with, with every treasure that you can uncover while you're in there. And so to me, I, it's the same as the cell phones. I feel like somebody went out of their way to try to destroy those phones or what could be on those phones and then had to take it a step further and take an item or two from the home that may have some connection to them or to make it to stage it to look like some kind of robbery. And I and then I think if you're going to go that route, you also have to include what you said. They could have had a lot of cash on hand. And if somebody knew that, then it's not a random robbery. It's a targeted robbery with a very specific goal in mind for the perpetrator yeah or it's one of the goals there could be multiple goals you know what i mean well and with all of these with the with the high homicide rate in the area at the time in the city of for the year of 2010 we've seen this in other cases in other cities as well it it appears that the case quickly lost the attention of the investigators because they have case files piling up on their desk. And from what the police were saying, there was very little concrete evidence to go on in this case to begin with. Yet they kept telling the family all along for 10 years now that they can't tell them any details about the evidence because they were worried they would jeopardize the investigation. Yeah. Again, that's one of those things that I think would be so difficult with law enforcement because as you're giving this information to the family, you can tell that the family is they're, they're suffering. Their loved one was murdered. They want answers. 
They're starting to point the finger at you and put in blame on you for not getting this solved. But there's a part of you going, hey, we don't have a lot of evidence. And if I turn this over to you, then then there goes our case possibly. Yeah. And I'm going to continue to read between the lines here. So law enforcement would not address, this is according to the families, would not address whether there was any sexual assault or even confirm whether there was any type of robbery at all. Now, the family members that we spoke with are skeptical about both of these items. They were being told, this is very interesting, they were being told that there was no helpful DNA. That seems very intriguing to me, Captain. The choice of words there, there is no helpful DNA. It sounds like there is some kind of DNA evidence, but what the problem is with it, we, we do not know. Uh, they were told there were no prints, no forced entry, and no digital record of anything useful to go on in this case. That's according to what the family says they were told by law enforcement. But we know that Melissa texted her boyfriend that night, again, around 10 p.m., if it was, in fact, Melissa that, that sent that text. It could be if the phones are a big concern to the killer, maybe this is just a, a red herring here. We do know that there were other communications that night as well. Now, according to family members, DNA was found on some cigarette butts and drinking cups found at the crime scene. There was some partial prints that were found by crime scene techs. And per the Phoenix Police Department, none of these things panned out. That's what they're saying. But the family says that the Phoenix PD has failed to use updated testing methods to test the DNA. That they they have it, and they're simply running it every six months or so against databases of known offenders, but they're not retesting the DNA itself. The family even tried to petition for further DNA testing, saying that not everything from the scene, the, the, the evidence that they've been told was collected, they're saying, the families are saying, not everything at the scene has been tested, but the state officials have not been receptive to, to the families trying to get a hold of this information or pushing them to, to test it. This could be because an, of an infamous backlog in text in testing, I'm sorry, by the state crime lab. So in 2016, the Arizona sexual assault evidence collection kit task force reported a total of 6,424 untested rape kits in their storage at law enforcement agencies across the state. So I'm pointing all this out to, to just say, hey, look, it's very possible that there is some material from Nicole and Melissa's attack that has never been tested. I mean, we have... We have them on record, the state of Arizona saying over 6,000 untested rape kits are in storage at law, law enforcement agencies across the state. And that is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And it, unfortunately, it goes on in every state. Arizona is not just the only one. In fact, there, there are cases here in Ohio, and I can say this because of our work with the Porchlight Project and our work here in True Crime Garage that we are aware of several cases that have DNA evidence. And for whatever reason, they're either not testing it or 
you know, it's, it's, it's just frustrating. It's frustrating. There is a certain amount of expense that is associated with, with these tests though, too. We, we do need to point that out that there, it's not free to, to do this type of testing. And, and these agencies do have to right. run on, on budgets like everywhere, any other business would. Right. But if it was, if it was men being raped, I guarantee you those tests would be done already. They wouldn't have any sitting on the shelf. Yeah, I don't know. I can't. I can't speak to that. I'm guessing that uh, if you have over six thousand untested rape kits, that that some of the victims might not, or might not all be female. Um, there are some people that have been vocal in this case, in the Glass and Mason case here, that say, "Look, the the ball has been dropped," and I will echo that that feeling as well. I will say it looks to me that the ball has been dropped here, but some have gone as far to say that the the ball, the dropping of the ball in this case was so blatant that they're wondering, was this on a purpose? Is, is there someone protecting someone else here or are the investigators in the Phoenix police department just borderline incompetent in this case? Well, you also have to wonder too with uh, Nicole and Melissa's, you know, working in a bar or working at a strip club, sometimes they have off-duty officers that will work security at night, or they'll have like a, I know my buddy's bar, they'd have cop come in as they would be closing down for the night. So maybe that's where the suspicion is leading people. And as far as if you want to look a little closer to home, we do have on record police saying that they that Marquise Melvin, the Melissa's current boyfriend at the time when she was killed, they say that he this is a direct quote from the police department. Quote, he's certainly been cooperative with our detectives, certainly providing some information to us that we hope will be useful in this investigation. But because we do not have any leads at this point, we certainly don't want to rule anybody out. So they checked out this, this current boyfriend of Melissa's and their, their stance on him is he's been cooperative. He's worked with our detectives and our investigators. If we need something, he's responsive. However, we've not officially ruled him out. We've not cleared him uh, specifically. Now they did say that a former boyfriend of, of Nikki's again, not saying that he's ruled out either, but they did go on record to say that they do not believe that the former boyfriend of Nikki was involved in any way at all. So I don't know if this means that he has a, a solid alibi for the night, or if he was just, you know, nowhere near the area, but in regards to that old relationship of Nikki's, we do have family members who are saying that the the breakup was amicable, that um, th- that there didn't seem to be any hard feelings. It was not a, a, a violent or hostile type uh, relationship. Now, per the Phoenix New Times, they reported that Melissa's boyfriend Marquise took and passed a polygraph examination. Uh, so that would further, further along the statement by police saying that he was in fact cooperative again, though, 
they've not officially cleared him. And if you're reading between the lines, they're going out of their way to publicly say he's been cooperative, but we've not officially ruled him out. So there must be something suspicious there. And as you pointed out, Captain, this pregnancy, unfortunately, it's supposed to be a beautiful, wonderful thing. We've seen this in other cases. It's also a motive for, uh, for murder. Yeah, which is sad and pathetic. As for other suspects, police uncovered some information that could be relevant to the murders. Nicole Glass had a record, a police record. In fact, she was arrested in 2009, so the year before. She was caught up in a some kind of giant sting operation that was targeting drug dealers and drug users in the area. Nicole used her phone to contact the dealer and she bought some pot. Now I do want to point out, this is very low level stuff here. Um, I've seen people online who suggest that this is the motive, that this is your answer, that, that she must've ratted somebody out or when they busted this, this drug ring that this pot, yeah, that, that this this was a little more bigger than than normal situations because it looks, from what I could find, they busted everyone they could find involved in this thing, and there were it was reported there were between sixty to one hundred and ten people arrested. So it it does seem to to go a little bit above and beyond your, your normal low level pot dealing. But from what I could see though, captain through all the weed smoke, it appears to me that she made a phone call and bought some weed. And that's about the extent of her involvement in this. So I don't know that I see a situation where it's some big time drug dealer, some drug cartel being ratted out by this person who probably liked to smoke a little pot on the weekend. So I think it's a little far-fetched to say that this is, in fact, the cause for a double homicide here uh, in in regards Mm -hmm. to Nikki and Melissa. Now, one thing that I found to be very interesting as we're kind of going through some different possibilities and theories here, Captain, the girls, both of the, the young women, were supposed to work a private event that night. So this is something that would be out of the norm for both our victims, right? And of course, murder is completely out of the norm. So we're looking for anything strange going on around the time of the crimes. This I found to be very interesting. They were supposed to work a private event that night and whoever, I, I couldn't figure out, find who set this whole thing up or who was supposed to pick them up. Somebody was supposed to pick them up and take them to the private event that night. And for whatever reason, whoever this was, they did not show up. So the, the two young women did not go and work this event. This right. And do we have a record of a a car showing up and honking the horn or going to the door and knocking and, and the girls just didn't come out and then the car left. Well, what we do have is we have communication from the the victims to others that say the event was not going to happen or the event fell through. So that's that's how we know that this this event, this private event that they were supposed to work uh did not happen. So let's go into to what this event was or could have been. 
this, from my understanding, keep in mind they're, they're bartenders. So someone had hired them to work a private event as bartenders for that night. Now the boyfriend leaves their home. If the boyfriend's not involved, I mean, he could be, if he's not involved, if he didn't kill them, if, if him and, and somebody else didn't kill them, because I'm with you, captain, I think this was more than one person, but was this whole private event? Was this this person that's supposed to show show up and pick them up? Is this some kind of ruse? That to me seems likely, but if that person were to be the killer or wanted to attack or rape one or both of the women or what have you, it seems to me that this person would have went along with, hey, the event's still going on and picked up the women and taken them willingly from the home to another location. Yeah, that makes sense. The event, from my understanding, had something to do with the Phoenix Cardinals, with the with the football team. It was supposed to be some kind of mm-hmm. after-hours party that they were going to bartend. And for whatever reason, again, ac- according to this communication, it looks like either they it was decided that they were not needed for this event or that the event did not happen at all. Now, I looked up the... 2010 cardinal schedule because my first thought was they were found friday friday morning friday early afternoon so was this a situation where the cardinals were playing a thursday night home game and there was going to be some after party well there's nothing in the football schedule that would indicate to me anything obvious uh, any kind of obvious event going on that night they played the sunday before and they played the sunday after and the Cardinals were not very good that year, so I don't see any reason for celebration at all. So I, I, I do wonder what this event was, what the exact details of this event were to be. It's something that I've looked at and would like to know more about. And then to circle the wagons one more time here, Captain, I think that the answer to me I think this is a very solvable case. Now, I don't know what has been lost due to time. I mean, keep in mind, we're sitting here in the garage, December 2020. So this month marks the 10-year anniversary of the triple homicide. And it is still unsolved. And you have to wonder how cold has this case got by now. And what do we have in the way of evidence? We know that they collected a lot of items from the home. It seems to me like there's meat on the bone here for detectives. It sounds to me like there is somewhat of a breadcrumb trail that they have some type of evidence. I just question how well they are currently working this case. And I think it's solvable. Or there might not be much. There's a trail, but there's not much bread on there. Well, I think it's solvable too, because of the cell phones. To me, that points at every indication that one of the girls, likely both of the young women knew the assailant or the assailants. People went out of their way to try to destroy information on those phones. Did somebody, I'm wondering if it could be to the point where somebody even made a threat via text message, or was there somebody calling one of these young women over and over and over again that night. Right. And they thought by dumping it in and look, there could have been a pan with 
water in the sink already, but they decided, well, if I dump it in this pan with water, I'll get rid of these text messages or these phone records. Yeah, it, and, and it doesn't. It looks to me like someone was very concerned about what was on one, if not both of those phones, to the point where they made an, a, a, a conscious effort to, one, not take the phones with them, not remove them from the home. I think there was something removed from the home maybe to stage the possibility of a robbery or there was something that tied something that directly tied the perpetrator to that home that they decided to remove with them, but they decided not to take the phones, but, Oh, I got to destroy these phones. They didn't smash them. They were smart enough to leave them in water. Well, that's what makes you um, start going down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole a little bit because you go "Mm, put the cell phones into water don't take them with you because even if the phone was turned off you probably could get some cell phone ping technology who has knowledge of that well law enforcement um so that could get your brain going down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole pretty or people listening to this show you know they you can pick up on Mm -hmm. these things uh, a multitude of different ways so to me, I think that that is your breadcrumb. That is your breadcrumb trail right there for me. It's it's who in their inner circle would have killed them. I mean, obviously, we said it's been reported to the newspapers by by employers and coworkers, family and friends that we could not find an enemy. We could not find anyone that didn't like them. But yeah. obviously, someone someone did not like them or did not like what was going on or somebody liked them too much. That's true. That's true. And what I would like to know, and I think it's something that they, again, you know, was the case dropped? Was the ball dropped here? I don't know, but they didn't obviously pick up the ball and run with enthusiasm. Right. Right. It wasn't Nick Jubb from the Cleveland Browns grabbing the ball and taking off running with it. No. Or if you saw Chase Young pick up that fumble and run into the end zone, you're not going to stop those guys. And I think some of the stuff that they could have done, and I would like to know the answer, maybe they know the answer. If you have a smaller time period of when you think possibly Nicole was killed or Melissa was killed, is there a gap? Or is it within maybe a couple minutes Again, because we need to figure out, are we looking for one suspect or are we looking for or two or three? So I think that's some stuff that with the autopsy, you know, take the ball and run with the autopsy, that they could have better answers. And, and that, I think, would lead you into different avenues of investigation. Well, and one thing, too, that I think is just ridiculous i mean when we spoke with john when we spoke with john douglas he said i i don't get he's like he's like yeah i get that you have to have some hold back information he's like but the public is who is going to help investigators most of the time solve these cases before they go cold and he's saying you know i don't understand why they would choose to hold back everything and not let the public know anything at all There is no doubt in my mind that law enforcement knows, has a much better idea of 
Well, they were killed sometime between 10 p.m. and 12.22 p.m. the next day. I mean, that is a window of of 14 and a half hours, roughly. They know they can shrink that window down a little bit more. And what I mean by, by why would you hold on to that information? It makes no damn sense because if you know, if you can go, you know what, Chicken butt. we have a, a pretty good idea that, that both of them were dead for eight hours or 10 hours before they were found. Well, right. that's a much shorter window. You have family and friends and a lot of people. You have neighbors who seem to be nosy watching the watching the cul-de-sac, watching the, you know, watching the neighborhood. If you can release right. that information, now you have a much shorter window. You have people that are eager to help and provide information to the Phoenix Police Department in this specific case, and they can go, you know what? Uh so and so was not accounted for during this time. Or oh, uh, oh, yeah. the boyfriend, uh, he said this, that, and the other thing. Well, um, he left in the middle of the night or he didn't come home until very early in the morning. You know, there, there's a hundred different ways to, to shake this thing and to get some, some better information. I mean, in, in defense of the Phoenix to police, the police department, we do have the Sergeant Steve Martos on record saying, unfortunately, this case has remained unsolved that the Phoenix police department and members of the crime lab were working tireless, tirelessly on this case and many other cases. And this will remain the focus on identifying and arresting those responsible for this triple homicide. It says, according, according to the Sergeant, he's saying that the department is continuing to seek help from the community. Well, that doesn't seem to be the actual case because you're you're claiming to the family members that this is a high profile case and we can't tell the family anything. You're seeking information from the community. Yes, you are, but you're not giving any you're not giving any help to the community. Help me to help you. You know, you there there is information that they can come off of in this case that I think uh, people can provide some details to investigators to narrow down the suspect pool here. Well, that's arrogance and it's ignorance as well. And it's basically, um, it's an ego thing. And that's why John, somebody like John Douglas is, goes, I don't understand because what he understands is that at the end of the day, it's it, again, I'm going to bring up another football reference. Only two football references in the last four years. Just, just to let everybody know. It doesn't matter how you get the win as long as you get the win. Because two weeks from now, nobody gives a shit if you beat the team by one point or if you beat the team by 10 points. It doesn't matter if you get the win. And it's the same with law enforcement. If you solve the case, it don't matter how you got there. It doesn't matter if you if you put out... It's just like in the Delphi case. If they would have put out some of this information earlier, maybe it would have been solved. And if it got solved, then you're the hero. Nobody's going to look at you and go, oh, you released too much information. You're not a good detective. If your job is to solve the, the, the case, it doesn't matter how you solved it. And I think that's why people like John Douglas are going, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why would, not, why would you not use the media? Why would you not use the public to try to solve this case? Because they're the ones that are going to help you solve it. And guess who's going to get credit? Yeah, you will. 
law exactly. enforcement the will. Phoenix the department will. will. They'll, they'll be the heroes. They will be the heroes at the end of the day who solved the case. Now, if you and I are right, Captain, and our suspicions that more than one person was involved in this attack, from what very little that they're telling us about the crime scene and the crime itself, it appears to me that this was two or more individuals. That puts a much higher probability that someone in that group has told somebody at some time. Maybe they got dr- a drunk confession or or a guilty confession. They just had to get it off their chest and tell somebody. I believe that someone has been told some information in regards to this triple homicide, and it's time to come forward. It's been 10 years. Now, Rachel Glass spoke with the Arizona Central in 2019 saying, quote, I need answers. My daughter was 27 and she was just starting her life. I thought I would be planning a wedding instead of a funeral. And then we have Melissa's mom, Sandra, who told the Arizona Central, quote, we relive the moment over and over again. And we get asked the same questions. I have the same answers because I have no new information. We just pray to God that one day we'll see justice. As said, Captain, this December marks 10 years since these women were murdered and their killer or killers is still out there walking around free, free to kill again. Anyone with information on this case is asked to call silent witness at 480-948-6377. We will include that phone number in today's show notes. There is a reward for information in this case. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage every week. We enjoy your company. We enjoy your smell. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading this week? This week, I am very happy to be recommending the snow killings inside the Oakland County Child Killer Investigation by Marnie Rich Keenan. This is, in my humble opinion, the definitive book on the Oakland County case. It's a very famous case, and this book was put together by Marnie Rich Keenan. She is an award-winning reporter and columnist who recently retired after 26 years with the Detroit News. If you're looking for a last-minute holiday gift idea, pick up The Snow Killings and give it as a gift this year. It's the perfect book for any true crime fan. I want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage. Yeah, and if you pick up one of the recommended reading books, send us a picture, tag us in it on social media. And for everything true crime, check out truecrimegarage.com. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't listen.
you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 